Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by our longtime friend and member, Scotty Miser. Well, as Gary said, uh, Christmas season is not yet over. As much as your tired selves may want it to be, I, I don't mean to speak for all of you, maybe some of you want it to be Christmas all year, but uh, is there anyone like that here tonight? Anyone who's just like, yeah, Christmas? Rosie. Rosie, okay. If Rosie were here, she would be advocating for Christmas all year. But for the Scrooges amongst us, alas, Christmas is still here. It does not technically end until this Thursday, January 6th. We call it Three Kings Day. It's the 12th day of Christmas. It's the official end of the Christmas season. Uh, You'll find it heavily observed in Catholic traditions, uh, most heavily celebrated in Spain and Latin America with gifts, costumes, and other really rich traditions that we don't have time to go into, unfortunately. That said, the whole thing is a mystery. This story is weird. Those 12 verses that we just read together, that is 100% everything we know about the Magi. I cannot stress that enough. That is everything we know about the Magi. They do not come up again. They do not come up in any other Gospels. Matthew 2, 1 through 12, that's it. That's all we've got. We don't know their names, their nationality, or even their number. They come, they give, and they leave. But church tradition over the centuries, over the millennia, has latched on to these characters. We don't know how many they were, right? The Bible tells us there were three gifts, but there could have been five wise men, there could have been two dozen wise men, there could have been a hundred wise men. We don't really know. But over the years... Tradition, storytelling, has whittled it down to three. We don't know what their names were, uh, but our traditions have named them. You may or may not be aware of this. Can anyone other than Gary (laughs) tell me the names of the three wise men according to church tradition? One shares a name with a friendly ghost. That's my hint. Casper. Casper. Yes, we have Casper or Caspar. Uh, Gary, what are the other two? Uh, Balthazar. Balthazar, yes. Melchior. And Melchior. Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. The big three, ladies and gentlemen. We don't know their names, but we've named them. We don't know where they came from, though Christians throughout the world in China in Persia, in Arabia, in India, they've all laid claim to at least one of the wise men. Christian communities have latched on and said, oh yeah, Balthazar, that's my guy. Balthazar is my guy. Caspar, oh yeah, he's from China. So why? Why has tradition leaned so heavily on these minor characters? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is the vagueness kind of fuels your curiosity, right? The fact that we're not 
told a lot makes me want to imagine what it is, what the facts are. It also keeps me from proving you wrong. Like, I can't tell you that it wasn't Balthazar. Maybe they were named Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. But I think more importantly, these men and their gifts foreshadow the life and the ministry of Jesus in some really beautiful and profound ways. This is another thing that tradition latched onto early, early in the church. Church Father Origen uh, actually caught on to this back in the third century. He noticed this pattern of the gifts. Origen said that Jesus was given gold as to a king, myrrh as to one who was mortal, and incense or frankincense as to a god. That's not in the Bible. But we're going to try it on today. We're going to try it on. It's been mentioned that we're about to enter into a New Testament sermon series. We're going to learn a little bit more about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And as we move into that, I would encourage you to remember this pattern. Remember this pattern of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The King of Kings, the Son of God, and mortal flesh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So let's start with gold. The child is born the King of Kings. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, this is sort of a, a leftover from more historical days. We generally think of there just being kind of one king per sovereign nation, right? But the fact is that if you had enough resources, you could set yourself up just about anywhere and call yourself a king. As long as no one contested that who had more resources than you, you could do it. But when you called someone a king of kings, well, that meant they actually had someone under them. And in this case, the other king that we're introduced to is Herod the Great. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east, we'll talk about what that word even means later, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So the Magi, in search of a king, come to the nearest king. They go to Jerusalem. They come to King Herod, seeking the king of the Jews, and Herod immediately senses a threat. Why is that? Well, as we've said, there's different kinds of kings. Herod was a client king of Rome. That meant he existed under Rome's larger empire. He'd been put in charge of Judea. And Herod the Great has been criticized for a lot, but the dude built an aristocracy. He's known for massive building projects. 
And as I said, he's been put in charge of Judea. And what's his main job as the king of Judea? He's been put in charge to make sure the Jews don't cause trouble, essentially. Herod has to make sure that the Jews don't cause trouble for the larger empire of Rome. And now these magi come and they say, we are seeking the one born king of the Jews. Best case scenario, this is about to make King Herod's job complicated. And I think that the beautiful thing about this story, though, is that it reminds us that this is the first, but far from the last, that Jesus is going to make people in power very uncomfortable. Jesus upsets systems of power. The minute we've built ourselves up, the minute we think we're in control, the minute we think that we're in charge, the minute we think that our status is more important than people. Jesus comes into the world, King of Kings, to challenge that. Now, how do we know that the Magi believed that Jesus was the King of Kings? Well, they seek out Jesus. But remember, Herod told them to report to him. The Magi straight up disobey. Marie, you want to bring up that next slide? client king of Rome tells the Magi, hey, report to me. And the Magi straight up don't. Now, they don't say no to his face. I presume they say yes, and then just didn't do it, which is somehow more cool. Um, they probably confused Herod for quite a while. They know that while Herod may be intimidating, he is not the king of all kings. They know that whatever power they're seeking out is greater than the one who sits on the throne. The Magi disobey King Herod because they understand that while he has a throne, he is not the king. Gold reminds us that Jesus upsets power. And it reminds us that Jesus is the king, not just of the Jews, but the King of Kings. Amen? Amen? Jesus is the King of Kings. So let's move on to frankincense. Get into these gifts that are getting progressively harder to spell. Frankincense tells us that the child is not only King of Kings, the child is God. If we pull up that, uh, that next verse. On coming to the house, the Magi saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, what does that have to do with frankincense? Like, we don't need frankincense to tell us that they worshipped him. But how does that help? Well, if you move to the next slide here. We don't know much about the Magi, but based on the region they were likely from, they were likely Zoroastrians. The Zoroastrians had this class called the Magi. They were this priestly class, and they would worship in fire temples, essentially burning 
To this day, practicing Zoroastrians burn sandalwood and frankincense, an offering to their god. So the Magi are likely coming not just from a different historical, political structure than Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. They're coming from a different religious structure. They've come and they're offering the Christ child the instruments of their faith. And to bring it back to the word magi, this word is not used often in the New Testament. Um, the translation of it is where we get the word magic. Uh, we know that these men studied the stars. The only other place that we see magi used in the New Testament are about uh, Elemis and Simon the Sorcerer in the Book of Acts, which if you know those stories, they are both about men who try to buy the power of God, and it does not end well for them. But these magi are elevated. These magi are allowed to bring the tools of their own religious practices to the altar, not of fire, but to a cradle. I just want you to imagine for a second, like, imagine you're a good Jewish family receiving these gifts, right? Like, you've done your best, and then all of a sudden, you're given this gift. Has that ever happened to, like, y'all with kids? Has a friend of the family ever given your kids a gift that makes you uncomfortable? Like, maybe not for religious reasons, but maybe like, oh, I don't know if he's ready for that one, or uh, I don't know about that in general. Do you accept it? You're a good Jewish family. And these far-off foreigners come bringing your baby some strange religious artifacts. Do you accept it? Frankincense reminds us, first of all, that we are allowed. It reminds us that we belong. I don't know about y'all, but I think if you've been in the church long enough, an idea has probably occurred to you that you've asked yourself, am I allowed to believe that? Am I allowed to entertain that thought? Am I allowed to think that? Here's the thing. We don't know what these magi believed, but we know that they believed in Jesus, and we know that they were allowed to come worship him with frankincense. If you bring it into a close-up here, I kind of love this picture because I can't really tell if Jesus is God doing this, like hand-on accepting this man, or if he's just a baby grabbing the scalp. <laughs> and that's probably the artist's intent. But the point is that frankincense reminds us that we belong, and it reminds us that we're not to judge others when they join us at the table to learn more about Christ. Gary's uh, Three Kings sermon last year was titled something like, Jesus Invites the Wrong People. And I think that's worth holding on to, so I'm going to steal it. Citation, Gary Alloway. 
Frankincense reminds us that we belong and it reminds us not to judge others. Frankincense, more importantly, reminds us that Jesus is deity. It reminds us that this child is not only king of kings, he's the son of God. Amen? This child is the son of God. King of kings, son of God, mortal flesh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh shows us that the child is mortal. So like frankincense, myrrh is also a perfume. It's an oil. But it was more common in embalming. Myrrh is the perfume you put on a dead body to keep it from smelling. And it reminds us that Christ becoming flesh means that Christ is born mortal. He's the King of Kings. He's the Son of God. And yet he hungers. He bleeds. He dies. And it reminds us of tragedies greater, greater than everyday grief. It reminds us of the cost when we dare do the way of Christ and we dare threaten the powers of earth. After verse 12, when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Rama, weeping and a great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. If the Matthean account, if Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus had ended with the shepherds, this would have been a very sweet story. But when the Magi come in, when power gets involved, things get complicated and things get messy very quickly. Herod is willing to kill to keep the power he has. And if he cannot kill one child, he will kill them all. Mothers and their babies were hunted, their children slaughtered. In church tradition, these children have a name. They're called the Holy Innocents. This is what happens when we dare come against the powers of earth. There's a cost. Tyrants do not go down without a fight. Racism does not disappear just because we speak out against it. 
equality does not happen just because we start fighting for it. Those in power do not go down without a fight. Even if that fight is against children. And this is just unequivocally a tragedy. If we're to believe the historicity of this story, these children should have grown up. They would have been Jesus' friends. They would have grown up his playmates, his brothers, his peers. They should have been allowed lives. This tragedy is senseless and needless, as all true tragedies are. A voice is heard in Mama weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I hope you've never felt like this, but I suspect that you have. There are times when we grieve and we think things will get better, or I hope someone comes and cheers me up. And there's times when we grieve, and in tragedies like this, we don't want to be comforted. And Jesus' story is adjacent to both. This is the first time that Jesus' story comes up against death, and he escapes it this time. He's made a refugee. He and his mother and father escape to Egypt. But ultimately, this pattern continues. Because the good news of Christmas doesn't stop at Christmas. Because this is not the last time that Jesus fights against power. This is not the last time that Jesus invites his followers to worship and look toward God. And this is not the last time that Jesus' life is threatened. And if you go against the established powers long enough, eventually, death is the end. Murder reminds us that Jesus goes into the darkest places the good news of Christmas goes into those darkest places, into that weeping in Rama. It anticipates the cross. And myrrh reminds us that Jesus is God-made flesh. And that flesh is not evil, but it is fragile. It aches, it tires, it dies, and it can be killed. Myrrh reminds us that God is with us in tragedy. Myrrh reminds us of the cross. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The King of Kings, the Son of God, and mortal flesh. What is the good news here? What can we actually carry forward? As I was learning about the holy innocence, I came upon this icon. This icon depicts Jesus reuniting with those first martyrs killed in his name. 
as Jesus, the Son of God, likely a price of incarnation was that he was too young to know why he was being worshipped. These were too young to know why they were dying. But the promise of Christmas is that the light not only enters into the darkness, but that the darkness has not overcome it. The promise is not only that Jesus is King of Kings in some esoteric name-only way, but the promise of Christmas is that earthly powers will not last. The promise of Christmas is that Jesus is not merely the Son of God in some cool religious factoid way. The promise of Christmas is that the Son of God dwells amongst us. And the promise of Christmas is that mortal flesh has value. The promise of Christmas is that everyday struggles and heartbreaking tragedies have value and that all that is broken will be made new. Amen? All that is broken will be made new. Amen? The good news is that Jesus grows up, the child grows up and brings hope. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.